0: 36 chapters in numbers, and I greatly appreciated the lunch. Tony Milbourne does an excellent job with food, and we had rave reviews from our family over the lunch, and they tolerated their father. But it was a great time, very enjoyable. And what what we have been talking about <clears throat> is the fact that some of these old testament books are not just wallpaper they're not just background material they're not just accessories these these old testament books are the foundation of the new testament and numbers is one of the foundational books especially in hebrews that we are studying with Pastor Van, there are crucial arguments in Hebrews that come out of Numbers. We'll see this beginning in chapter 3. So today I'd like to talk about Numbers in the New Testament, specifically Numbers in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've chosen verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. You're going to have to open your Bibles, maybe even get out a pen, because there's no fill in the blanks. There are no overheads. All you got is me. All right? So, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. <clears throat> no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, what I'd like to do is, I'd like to talk about the first clause in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And then I'd like to talk about the clause in verse 12, which says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Then I'd like to come back to verse 13 and talk about the rest of the verse. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able to but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I'm in verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you, but that, that is not common to man. I have trouble saying that because I memorized it from the King James, and that doesn't work the same way. <clears throat> this passage is saying that whatever temptation you face, other people face it. You cannot think that you have difficulties that are different. Temptation is a normal thing. And the illustration today that Emma gave and the others is is such an excellent illustration of the way we hear what God is saying and we hear these other things, you know, That may even come from parents. You may wonder what's happening with the Tucker family over there. (laughs) But that was a skit. And Emma's not going to go that way, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah, you guys are almost as bad as the eight o'clock service. I'm kidding. So that's a picture of the way things work in our lives, where we hear these voices and we get this temptation. So I'm reading, beginning in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul can say we have that temptation is normal because of the book of Numbers and the book of Exodus. I'm reading verse 6, 1 Corinthians ten six. And were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, nor grumble, nor grumble, nor grumble, nor grumble, grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul says, I can tell you from the Old Testament, I can tell you that there are four common temptations that everybody faces. Everybody faces. And he lists them. And he gets his examples out of the Old Testament. The first one is idolatry in verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's quoting from Exodus 32. When the people decided the best thing for them, since Moses hasn't appeared in 40 days, the best thing for them is to create a golden calf. So they employed Aaron in the task, and he came out with some golden thing. And then Aaron says in Exodus 32, 5, Aaron says this tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord and verse 6 says this and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings I assume to the golden calf and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play Why does it say they sat down to eat and drink and rise up to play, rose up to play? What's that have to do with idolatry? I think that is suggesting to us that idolatry, at least at the beginning, is always easier. It's always easier. You can see an Israeli boy back there saying, you know, when I go to worship Yahweh God, I need to take a lamb. And it needs to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know how expensive those are? You know? People charge extra for those. You don't find sales on perfect lambs. And when I go to God and worship God, it costs money. And I have to really want to do it. Matthew twenty four thirty seven says, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. We're living in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And people are completely unaware of the significance of the time. Instead, they're eating and drinking and rising up to play. Martha and I retired almost seven years ago and I think that since that time and probably before that time, almost every retirement commercial I have seen or retirement advertisement that I have received in the mail pictures retirement as sitting down to eat and drink and rising to play. You know? And it's usually pictured as you deserve this. You've saved all that money. You've slaved for all those years. You deserve this. That is the ultimate life to be able to eat and drink, sit down to eat and drink, and rise to play. Do you know what that is? That's idolatry. That's idolatry. That's the worship of yourself. You are living for yourself. You are living to do what you want to do, when you want to, with whom you want to, and you have enough money to pull it all off. It's idolatry. The second thing is immorality. We must not, this is verse 8, 1 Corinthians ten eight. we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is a story of Numbers 25, where it says in verse 1 that the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. The daughters invited the people to sacrifice with their God, and they did it and liked it. Think of the difference of spending a lot of money to bring a lamb to God and then watching the priest kill the lamb and burn the lamb as an offering to the Lord. And then getting an invitation from this temple prostitute down here in Moab who says, come to our assembly. And you go there and you're greeted at the front door by some prostitute and you sit down and she sits down next to you and she invites you to dance with her. Why do I want to spend all that time and money on Yahweh when... The United Church of Baal has more entertainment and is free. And what happened in in Numbers 25 is that it brought the fierce anger of the Lord. It talks about God responding with fierce anger. The fierce anger was not just fierce anger, it was mercy and you'll notice as you read chapter twenty-five, it's it's everything is in haste. Why? Because people are dying left and right. Twenty-three thousand fell in one day. You know what that is? That's a thousand an hour. And the reason why God judged them is because if that had not been stopped, it would have ruined the whole camp. A couple of dancing temple, prostitutes, and these guys are running head over heels to go after them. Are we tempted to immorality? I think today, in a greater way than any other generation, we face temptation to immorality. It seems like every magazine at Walmart has the word sex or sexy on the front cover. It's like this is the most important thing in anybody's life. How many magazines have you seen with the word God on the front cover? You know, God is out. Sex is in. When I was growing up, you had to go to some other place. You know, you had to go to a magazine store or some other place. Today, for $120 a month, you can pipe it into your living room. HBO, Cinemax, Showtime... A host of delightful, sexy packages. Amen? Do you look at that stuff? Do you look at that stuff? You know, I think in an audience this size, there are people that spend their life in that stuff. And I would guess that in an audience of this size, with the number of marriages we have, some of you are unfaithful to your marriage covenant. And you're cheating on your wife or your husband. Numbers 25 is aimed at you. Numbers 25 says, don't think that you can get away with it. Because there's a God in heaven who can respond with fierce wrath fears. Sexual immorality begins with your thoughts. What do you think about? What do you allow to come into your mind, into your ears? It's an issue of keeping your mind pure. Keep your mind focused on that which is good and right, God's word. That's number two. Number three is testing Christ. Testing Christ. It says in verse 9, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is Numbers 21. I'm reading verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us Up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless manna. Notice they're complaining about God's supply. The people are so bent out of shape that they announce their displeasure. There is no food. What do you mean there's no food? There's manna everywhere. And God has faithfully supplied manna. And God faithfully supplied manna for 40 years, every day of the year, except the Sabbath. No food. Do you see what they're doing? They're criticizing God. They're saying, your supply of my need does not meet my specifications. That is not what I need. We are tired of manna. We have had enough Egg McManna and McManna burgers to last a lifetime. And research shows that human beings need more variety than Egg McManna. My guess is, if they had gone to God and said, thank you, Lord, this is really awesome, We appreciate what you have given us, and we wonder if there's another way to cook it. I bet God would have come up with new recipes, you know, and He would have shown them how to turn Egg McManna into Chick fil A McManna. (laughs) Or, you know, or something else. But they're complaining. You know, to see a miracle every day that announces that God loves you and is concerned about you and will take care of you, and then to criticize God because it doesn't meet your specifications is tempting God. There are Christians that do that repeatedly. They criticize the church because it's too big or too small or not friendly or too friendly. They criticize their husband or their wife, usually behind their back, because they don't meet their specifications. They're impatient with their kids because they do not exhibit adult qualities at the age of eight. Wait a minute. This church was given to you so you could grow. Are you growing? Or are you just complaining? And your wife and your husband were given to you to help you. And your children are identified in Psalm 127 as your inheritance. Do you realize they're your inheritance? Or do you have something more important sitting in an IRA somewhere? Do you realize that your children are your eternal inheritance? that someday in eternity they're going to bear fruit for your name as well as God's name. And you're criticizing God for what he sent your way? See, tempting God means you're challenging God over what he said or over what he's done or over what he hasn't done. We do this in prayer You know, prayer should begin with, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. And we pray looking for ways to get God to do my will on earth. Lord, you've got to do this. I need this. And prayer becomes almost a person trying to take over God. Tempting God. Tempting God. The fourth one Paul mentions here is grumbling. Grumbling? I always laugh when I see grumbling here. You know, why is grumbling in with these bad things? You know, these other things are bad. Grumbling's normal, isn't it? Isn't it the all-American sport? Baseball, football, grumbling? Grumbling means you give verbal expression to your dissatisfaction. First Timothy six, eight says, Having food, having raiment, let us be content. I noticed that a lot of these temptations in my life begin with discontent i am not content having food and raiment let us therewith be content it looks to me like you all have had food you're all you all have raiment clothes are you content Are you sitting here today saying, I just bless the Lord because he has blessed me? I am rejoicing over all that I have at this moment. Or do you need something to make you content? Do you say, if I get that Corvette if See, that attitude is an attitude of covetousness. That attitude is an attitude of discontentment with what God has done. That's the beginning of grumbling. So we have grumbling in the Old Testament in numbers all over the place. But I'm trying to emphasize the fact that these four kinds of temptation are common. They're normal. You have probably experienced them. perhaps in the last five minutes. Everybody experiences them. Let me go to verse 12. Here's the second section at 1201. Verse 12 says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We normally say, yes, we all have four basic weaknesses we all fall into sin too often. We shouldn't fall into sin too often. Let's ask God to forgive us and let's quit doing that, and we're all going to be better, right? All agreed? Amen? We can close in prayer. Go home early. Uh, I don't think at this time we're going to get to the restaurants before the Baptist. I said that in the previous services. <laughs> it's going to be too late. I'm sorry. But it's the idea of, you know, okay, we sinned, let's ask God to forgive and let's 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 be better. This passage uses the word fall. Fall. The difference between sin and a fall is in what happens afterwards. In verse 10, we see that because of the fall, they were destroyed by the destroyer. In verse 9, we see that because of the fall, they were destroyed by serpents. The fall in verse 8 resulted in 23,000 deaths in one day. In verse 5, the fall resulted in God's displeasure, which overthrew most of them in the wilderness. And the fall Paul was personally concerned about, in chapter 9, verse 27, he says this, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest having preached to others, I myself should be, what's the next word? Disqualified. 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 This is the Apostle Paul. Okay, this isn't a rebel who's running away from God. This is the Apostle Paul who's serving God, and he says, I'm worried about the possibility that I might be disqualified after I preach to others. What he's talking about is a fall. He's not only talking about temptation that leads to sin, and then quickly gets forgiven. He's talking about temptation that leads us into some sin that kills us, that ruins us, that takes us out of the race. Disqualifies. What does it mean to be disqualified? That's where the book of Numbers helps us. The book of Numbers defines the word for us. And this is exactly what Paul does. He used the word disqualified in 9.27. And the next thing he did was go to Numbers. Chapter 10, verse 1. I don't want you to be ignorant of what happened to our fathers in the wilderness. What happened to our fathers in the wilderness? Well, they received all of these blessings from God. They were just unbelievably blessed. They were baptized into Moses they partook of food. They, this, this stream of water was chasing after them. They were guided by a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. And verse 5 says And then they were overthrown in the wilderness. Gone, done, finished, ended. What happened? Well, the bottom line is very clear in Numbers. The bottom line is they didn't go to the promised land. They missed the promised land. They were at the door of the promised land. They sent 12 spies in. The 12 spies came back and said, it is everything God said it is. It's an awesome place. And they had those grapes, one cluster of grapes, took two men and a pole to carry. It's everything God said. But 10 of the spies said, we detected in the land People who were of extra weight and extra height. And we can't handle that. And they compared themselves with those people and thought they looked like grasshoppers. Ready to be squished. And they voted against obeying God. So verse 5 makes this warning statement. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What do you mean, overthrown? What does it mean that they didn't enter the promised land? Does this mean that they didn't go to heaven? Well, the promised land is not a picture of heaven. It never has been a picture of heaven. And even if you've sung the song, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye, to Canaan's fair and happy place where my possessions lie, I'm bound for the promised land. You remember that song? That's wrong. <laughs> we're not standing on Jordan's stormy banks looking for heaven. You say, how do you know the promised land is not heaven, does not equal heaven? Well, when they got to the promised land in Joshua, there, was, there were battles almost every day. It, there was sin in the promised land. The first guy, his name was Achan. You remember Achan taking gold and filling his pockets with gold at Jericho? And later on in the promised land, you have the book of Judges, which is a pretty dark book. And if that's a picture of heaven, it's not that exciting. The promised land is not a picture of heaven. So what is the promised land? What did the promised land represent? The promised land represented the goal of their rescue from Egypt. God got them out of Egypt to get them into the promised land. He said that at least 10 times in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I brought you out. I'm going to bring you in. He didn't bring them out to deposit them in the wilderness. He brought them out to get them into the promised land. So how does that correspond with us? What is the goal of our salvation? What does God have in the future for us? God saved us because he intends to take us to heaven, right? Amen. Absolutely. But God's salvation package includes something he wants to happen here on earth. God saved us so that we would grow up. God saved us so that we would become holy. God saved us so that we would walk with him. So that we would experience the joy and the peace and the victory that comes from seeing God at work when you face your troubles and difficulties. That's the promised land. Yesterday in, in uh, Numbers 15... We got to the last verse of Numbers 15, which to me is such a striking verse, where God says in Numbers 15, 41, I brought you out of Egypt because I want to be your God. You ever thought of it that way? God wants us to love him instead of this idol. Walk with him. Experience his joy. Be linked with him. So it's not an issue of missing heaven. It's an issue of missing all the blessings God has wrapped up in your salvation package. And I'm I'm speaking to people today, assuming that all of you have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, that all of you have come to him as a sinner and said, I cannot do it. Would you save me? And perhaps you've never done that. If you've never done that, I would love the privilege of sitting down with you and explaining to you what's going on and how to do that. But once you've trusted Christ, God gives you, according to, to uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer, God gives you 33 things that happen immediately when you trust Christ. He has a salvation package for your life that includes growing up becoming like Christ it's not an issue of missing heaven it's an issue of missing all the blessings God has wrapped up in your salvation package do you think God saved you so you could blow your life on drugs do you think he saved you so you could blow your life on sex on idolatry on money No, God saved you so you could walk with him. Who wouldn't want that? Why settle for drugs? Why settle for sex? Why settle for money when you can have God? Every day. All the time. For eternity. I'll take an amen. I was pretty weak. So that's the kind of temptation Numbers is talking about. The kind that takes us out of the race. The kind that gets us to turn away from God's will. Mess up our families. Mess up our lives. Mess up our kids. Mess up our church. And never achieve or enjoy what God wants to give you. And be like Israel, the fathers who were on the door of the promised land and died. Now we're to the good news. Back to verse 13. The good news in verse 13 is the end of the verse that starts with God is faithful. God is faithful. Then it says, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The story of Numbers highlights the incredible faithfulness of God. He went out of his way to guide these people, to meet their needs when they were crying and complaining and weeping, to supply manna. He shut down Balaam. I mean, Numbers 22, 23, and 24 are so funny. Just to see God shutting this professional cursor down, you know? And he comes back after having tried to curse these people, comes back and he he blesses them, you know, and the guy who hired him is so frustrated. Third time he comes back and blesses them, he claps his hand and says, Get out of here. I'm not paying you any money. That's God protecting his people. In so many ways. God went out of his way to write the book of Numbers for our benefit. But what we have in this passage is we have God faithful to you and to me in two specific areas. It says he is faithful, number one, A, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. B, will with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here's A, God faithfully puts a limit on the pressure of your temptation. There is an automatic volume control. There was an automatic pressure control. He guarantees that it will not be any hotter than you can bear. No matter what it looks like, it's not over your head. God says so. Was Israel tempted beyond her ability? There were giants in the land, really giants. The trip was incredibly hard. They were facing real terrorists. But the answer is very simple. How do we know it was not above their heads? All we had to do is watch their kids. You know, those over 20 died. What those under 20, what the 19 year olds do? They went and conquered the giants. Their parents could have. It wasn't over their heads. When we face temptation, we we should thank God for the fact that there is a limit to the temptation. He will not let you be tempted above your ability. Do you think that's true? You have to say yes, you're in church. But do you think that's true in your life when you get out of here? Do you think that he lets you get tempted above your ability? Do you think that your temptation is so strong that you have to yield? This verse says that's wrong. This verse says you should not let those thoughts control your mind. That you should not think that way. You think your temptation includes people like Og, the king of Bashan, who we learned about in Numbers 21. The one detail we have about Og is the size of his bed. Deuteronomy 3 says his bed was 13 feet long. Six feet wide. In other words, he was a big man. I showed pictures yesterday. By the way, if you want the result, if you want the... uh, the slides and the audio from yesterday, it's on, it's on the church website. I've got two pictures there of Robert Wadlow. Robert was a giant from 30, 50 years ago who was 8 foot 11. You look at those pictures and you say, <laughs> impossible, you know. He was a big man. And if you could imagine facing an army of those guys. You know? What was it like to face an army like those guys? Well, what it really was like is when he came right down to it, when those children obeyed God under Joshua and said, let's go get them. Actually, it was under Moses in Numbers 21. They weren't 11 feet, they were actually like three feet. They really weren't a problem. And they came to the realization that the temptation that their parents yielded to was not a whole lot more than smoke and mirrors. And Satan is a master at smoke and mirrors. He can take a three-foot pipsqueak temptation and make it look like the Incredible Hulk. And you fall saying, I can't handle that. And God said, no, I've limited that. You can handle that. So God has limited your temptation. And you should rejoice in that and believe it. The second thing he's done is he's faithfully provided a way of escape. It says, with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Do you see the word also? also says that if the temptation is there the way of escape is there it's automatic you don't have to pray for it you don't have to ask for it when the temptation comes the way of escape is there you need to find it you need to ask God for it you need to you know, open your ears and listen but the way of escape is there You say, how did that work in the Old Testament? They were tempted in Numbers 14, the giants in the land. Ten spies came back and said, we can't do it. What was the way of escape? The amazing thing is that the way of escape was being announced by Joshua and Caleb when these people decided they were going to quit and go back to Egypt. Joshua and Caleb were standing there saying, no, we can do it. God has promised. Let's go. The people's response was, let's stone them. There is a way of escape. God automatically provides it when you face temptation. So I'm done. 1219, but let me emphasize the last eight words, last eight words, that you may be able to endure it. Don't skip the word endure and get the wrong idea. God's escape hatch is not so that you can get out of it, but so that you can go through it. The word endure pictures a race, a marathon more than a dash, 26 miles rather than 100 yards. You don't win a race by getting out of the race. You don't conquer the temptation by getting away from it, but by going through it, by enduring it, exactly as in a race. You probably have heard testimonies like, I was at mile 14. I was running. I had a wall. I couldn't put one foot in front of the other foot. Then I ate my peanut butter sandwich and broke through the wall. The peanut butter sandwich was the way of escape so he could keep going. I think you'll find that God has supplied peanut butter sandwiches all along the way as our escape if we listen and pay attention. So Numbers introduces us to a people who were liberated from Egyptian bondage, who were only hours from God's goal, the promised land. Why did they miss it? Did they not have the ability? No, God was strong enough. Did they not know how? Were they not strong enough to take the cities like Jericho and kings like Og? No, that was not the issue. God was faithful. So how did they miss the land? It was the temptation that is common to man. It took her off the track. She fell at the front porch of the Promised Land. Don't let that happen to you. Don't let that happen to your kids. Don't let that happen to your friends in Christ. God is faithful. God will enable us to go through it successfully as we listen, as we obey. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the fact that you have given us this long line of books that provide foundational descriptions of living for Christ and walking with you. We thank you for the book of Numbers and just for the amazing display of your grace, your compassion, your mercy. And I pray that your faithfulness might work in our lives in such a way that we might reach the promised land, that we might walk with Jesus Christ, experience his rest and his fullness. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.